Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the state historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Natalie Bellinger of the Connecticut Historical Society talks to Steve Thornton of the Shoe Leather History Project about racial segregation and baseball in Connecticut. Every year on April 15th, Major League Baseball celebrates Jackie Robinson Day in honor of the first African-American man to play in the major leagues in the modern era. But Robinson wasn't the first African-American to play in the major leagues. At least three black players are known to have played in the majors before a strict color line came down in the late 1880s. Latino, Asian-American, and Native American players were accepted in the major leagues after that, though they faced discrimination, but Black players simply weren't signed to contracts at all. This kept Black players out of the majors and higher-level minor leagues, but it didn't stop them from playing baseball. Black players continued to play in a complex web of minor leagues, both professional and amateur, sometimes in integrated but usually segregated teams. In 1920, Andrew Rube Foster organized several existing leagues and clubs into what became to be known as the Negro Leagues, in which Black players, managers, owners, and promoters worked together to bring some of the best players in the sport to national attention. Connecticut has a rich baseball history. In the 1870s, the state briefly hosted two major league teams, the Hartford Dark Blues and the Middletown Mansfields. Many players of color played in the multiple minor league teams that dotted the state starting in the 19th century, to say nothing of local amateur ball clubs. I asked Steve Thornton of the Shoe Leather History Project to tell us about some of the players who battled racism off and on the field in the days before Jackie Robinson was a household name. So hi, Steve. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Why don't you start off by telling us some of the uh, early greats who played baseball in Connecticut? Sure. I think the first two that are most important to mention and have really national significance, uh, because even though they played in Connecticut for a good long while, was Frank Grant and uh, Fleetwood Walker, Moses Fleetwood Walker. And these two African-American players were among the best, maybe the best in the 19th century. Uh, and they all landed in Connecticut. In fact, we'll find that besides the homegrown teams and players who were really sometimes very good, because of our proximity to New York and uh, New Jersey and Massachusetts, we find that a lot of players ended up playing in Connecticut, either in between major leagues or after their prime. And Frank Grant was one of those who played second base. Uh, he was from Massachusetts originally. Uh, Frank Grant played for the uh, Cuban Giants, which became the Ansonia Big Gorums. <laughs> Ansonia Big Gorums. They, in fact, baseball teams changed their names all the time, either um, sometimes within the the middle of the season. But Frank Grant uh, was one of the greatest players of the day. What he is known for, unfortunately, is the fact that he was the inventor of shin guards. And shin guards, which mostly soccer players use, Frank Grant uh, improvised uh, protections to his 
lower legs, uh, not simply because of the rough and tumble of baseball, but because opposing teams would try to spike him with their, with their spikes, with their cleats. And that was just pure out-and-out racism. Uh, they resented and they feared uh, Frank Grant and black players. And so he was the uh, target of that kind of abuse. Uh, the second player, as I mentioned, was Moses Fleetwood Walker. And both he and Frank Grant played in Connecticut in around 1886. Uh, they, all, they both played for all white teams in the 19th century. It was Fleetwood Walker who played for the Toledo Blue Stockings, which were a major league white team. But he, was, he faced um, harassment and death threats as well. He, from both the opposing players and sometimes his own teammates, he was injured playing major league ball. And when he came back to baseball, he played for Waterbury, the Waterbury baseball team, as a catcher. And he was very, very popular in the city. In fact, both the uh, players were popular in their hometowns because they did such a good job for their teams. He was, uh, uh, Walker was uh, voted the people's choice by Waterbury newspapers uh, in 1886 because uh, of his, his spectacular playing. He was a catcher, but he was a wonderful uh, uh, hitter and uh, batter, and he had a, uh, a very good record. It strikes me as so hard to get your to wrap your brain around the fact that on the one hand these players could be immensely popular and yet at the same time face hostility from the public but also from their own team yeah well it's real i guess i would call it white schizophrenia because on the one hand baseball fans wanted to see good and excellent plays and players. On the other hand, the thought that uh, a black man might actually be beating a white player in terms of uh, uh, the statistics for a particular game, it was hard for them to get their um, minds around it. I think that once they understood that uh, an American Indian player or a Chinese player or a black player or a Cuban player, that they were watching on the field was doing some extraordinarily athletic and skillful work. I think that did sometimes, it gave, it gave the white audiences a sense of pride and it broke down some of the barriers that they had grown up with. To some extent to me, it indicates how much hard work racism is. To, if, you, if you have a system that's based on an idea of inferiority of certain types of people, you have to work hard when confronted with examples of excellence to tamp down what your eyes are seeing. And, and you know, what, what it seems like, for example, in baseball, it resulted in players, uh, people of color getting booted out of the major leagues and, and, and being segregated into their own teams, possibly partly because their very presence on those teams before was giving, was giving the lie to the system of segregation. You're exactly right there. I've also sort of, I've also found that uh, in the, especially in Connecticut, when they would bring in 
say a group like the Cuban Giants, which was made up of all black players, but in a sort of a half-hearted attempt to make believe they weren't black, they called them the Cuban Giants. And if the teams had friction between each other because of their race and the, say, the Cuban Giants were kicked out of the local Connecticut League, there would be no real explanation of that except that they were causing a disturbance or they weren't fitting in well. That was both, that was the same with individual players too. And you can only imagine what they had to face that didn't get recorded in any newspaper. It didn't get recorded in any um, uh, diary as far as we know, but we do know that the friction really did exist and that must've taken a toll also on the, the black players and some Players might have been able to uh, have a higher tolerance for it than others, but they all faced it. As you mentioned earlier, it wasn't only African-American or Black players who faced segregation in baseball. There were other groups that were also discriminated against. Can you talk about some of those individuals? Certainly. There were at least three Native American players who played in Connecticut. At the time, they were all really quite famous and now except among uh, baseball aficionados they are unknown and the first of those was Louis Sokalexis. Louis was a Penobscot Indian from Maine and he was a natural athlete from a youngster and played uh, at Holy Cross and played at the University of uh, Notre Dame and he was bound for the major leagues, clearly, because of his, his extraordinary talent. Unfortunately, at the same time, he struggled with, with um, alcoholism. And so he was initially playing for a major league team until he was injured in an alcohol-related accident. He then got dropped by the major league and he really wasn't able to get a job of that caliber anymore. So he moved to Hartford and uh, Hartford actually changed their names to the Hartford Chiefs, which is a promotional gimmick that they used in a number of different uh, cities around the country. And the, uh, the city was really excited about getting him because they had read all about Sock Lexus's uh, a prowess as a, um, a fielder and as a hitter. But unfortunately, there were 180 taverns and saloons on Front Street in Hartford at the time. And so alcohol, and that's, of course, where he would have ended up living because he couldn't live um, in any of the white neighborhoods while he was playing for Hartford. There was no check on his ability to stop drinking. So he would have some very poor playing efforts, but then he also did some extraordinary work that that just wowed the crowds there. And had he had some of the highest, the games that he was in had some of the largest attendance in um, in Hartford before him and or after him. He was really quite a draw. He couldn't control though his his disease and took another step down uh, in terms of a league play and he played for Waterbury for a while 
which was at a sort of a lower league, and tried to maintain his balance there and had a uh, had a manager who was really, really trying to help him. But again, he had to be released because he just couldn't be counted on with regular pay. The other two players were Albert Bender, who was known only as Chief Bender, and uh, Jack Myers, who was known as Chief Myers. And Albert Bender was uh, Chippewa, and he played for a number of major league teams. And then sometimes on the off season or uh, at various times where uh, maybe he was recovering, both they would both play in uh, local teams like in, in New Haven and, and other places like that. It's clear that uh, sports writers and other baseball experts really understood the talent there. And, when uh, Albert Bender played in New Haven, and I think beginning in 1903, he also uh, he played for the New Haven Indians first of all, which they called themselves after they had uh, first called themselves the New Haven Wise Men, uh, a play on wise men, uh, because a uh, owner from New York Weiss bought the team. He played also for the. Phillies, uh, Philadelphia Phillies, and the Athletics, and he was well respected and, and uh, earned really good statistics at that time. What's interesting is that in um, when he was playing in New Haven, he was already 37 years old. Now that's way past the time for a lot of players, but he sort of, he, as he explained later, he fudged his uh, his. Uh, high school certificate and so they always thought he was younger than he actually was uh john myers also played for new haven uh about 15 years later and he was the player manager and he was a member of the cahuila tribe cahuila probably saying that wrong in california he played for the Dodgers. He played for Boston. He played for the Boston Braves. And he was a World War I Marine. So each one of these two particular players had successful careers. And normally, they didn't come, as far as I know, I, I may be totally wrong about this, but they didn't come in for as much racial hatred. It was more uh, ridicule. It was the occasion for sports writers or fans to speak in, you know, pigeon broken English to dis to, to sort of imitate and, and ridicule uh, how these Indian players uh, supposedly spoke, which of course they didn't at all. But it was that sort of attempt to uh, humiliate, which I think must have worn on them. I should also mention one other particular player uh, William Lai, he was a Chinese player. He was known as Buck Lai, and he ended up having his own uh, barnstorming team called uh, Buck Lai's Hawaiians. He played in Bridgeport, and then he signed up for two different National League teams, both the Phillies and the Giants, but he never really played for either team. 
And that's because even though the owners of the team desperately wanted a good player that could beat the opposition, they were always weighing whether or not the fans or teammates would actually allow for that. And when they said, no, I'm sorry, you can't play, it was only uh, because they thought they would come up against so much uh, backlash that it would be bad for the bottom line. That's the same problem that the New Britain Aviators had in the, uh, in, starting in 1908. They decided they were going to recruit Cuban players, and these were actually real Cubans as opposed to the Cuban Giants, which were all African-American players. They recruited four of the best Cuban players ever, and there were lots and lots of good players coming out of that island and they had their own leagues and their own teams and they played in Mexico but they couldn't break into the major leagues at first but the new Britain aviators hired Alfredo Cabrera Rafael Almeida Luis Padron and especially Armando Marsans they um, they came to New Britain Connecticut uh, not knowing a word of English and not really being respected by the community at large. Although, again, there was this this sort of um, strange dichotomy where they wanted them to win, but they didn't want to acknowledge who they actually were. They the, the, These Cuban players lasted four or five seasons in New Britain before they ended up splitting up and some played for Springfield or Waterbury, some went back to the National Cuban League. But the real breakthrough was those who played for the Cincinnati Reds in 1911. So they they broke through as players of color in the white major leagues. Now, the way this happened is that the, the managers and the promoters of these players promised, swore that they were not men of color, that they were Spanish, and the, the head of um, the New Britain team went down to Havana, said he looked through records and talked to family members and came back and said, yep, they're all white. And since he was the only one who went down to, New, to, to uh, Havana, people were happy to take his word for it. But in fact, these Cuban players were uh, like the rest of Cuba, even though Spain um, had just relinquished its power over um, Cuba uh, not 10 years before, the the Cubans were indigenous people. These, these Cuban players were also indigenous pe- people. And if they looked dark, they would end up not being able to play in the, the major leagues. So there was a great deal of... Uh, discussion about that and they how they made those decisions was it was not regulated by race i mean by any law it wasn't regulated by any science it was just sort of the uh the popular fear feeling it, it was very difficult for these players you can tell reading between the lines in the newspaper accounts during the day uh, of, of the day because they would sometimes get very angry and 
the sports writer couldn't figure out why they were angry. And that's because they couldn't speak Spanish and the, and the players couldn't speak English. And so it was just left like that. Oh, he had a, uh, uh, he had a tantrum. Well, that's probably not the case, uh, but we'll never know exactly because uh, nobody you know, bothered to delve into that. Hey, Grading the Nutmeggers. We'll return to the episode in a moment, but I want to invite you to deepen your connection to Connecticut history with the CT Explored Inbox subscription. It's our brand new e-newsletter that sends you the latest stories, exhibitions, and program announcements. Lots of great stuff to enhance your Grading the Nutmeg experience right to your email inbox. Comes out every other week, just enough, not too much. Check it out at ctexplored.substack.com. It's free. And stay tuned at the end of the episode for a Grading the Nutmeg Extra, including details about how to hear a great talk that digs into the successes and epic failures of urban renewal in 1960s New Haven, coming up May 12th. Now, back to the episode. So this concept of players with African heritage quote unquote, passing as Cuban played a role or maybe didn't play a role in the career of a Hartford native, Johnny Taylor. Could you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. John Arthur Taylor, also known as Schoolboy Taylor, which seems like it might be a a diminutive, but there are a number of players that had the nickname Schoolboy over the years, mostly because they start when they're very young. And Johnny Taylor started his baseball career in 1934 at Buckley High School in Hartford. Um, He was a phenom, and he was really a fearsome player. He was a pitcher who, now this is high school, of course, but remember he's playing against other high school players. He struck out 25 batters in one game, 25 opposing batters in one game. And that same season, he hit... 418. Now, for folks who don't understand that, that's a, a, that's been me uh, often. Jackie Robinson hit a 311 lifetime batting average, and Johnny Taylor hit, hit uh, 418 in, in one season. Uh, and so that's an extraordinary number of hits when he was up to, to bat. He had clearly had a uh, a future in baseball, but but in 1934. He faced the same barriers as all black baseball players had before him. He uh, was a light-skinned man, but he was black. He was proud of it and refused to pass, so-called, as Cuban. In fact, the story goes, and I think this is um, based on uh, fact and not just uh, fancy, He was told by a baseball scout for the New York Yankees that if he said he was Cuban, uh, he could pass for white and play for the Yankees. Well, clearly he couldn't because he was already uh, so publicized in his time as a high school player. He didn't come out of nowhere. He had a very uh, significant reputation. So, but he didn't want to, more importantly, he didn't want to try to pass. So he moved to the Savitt Gems after high school. Now, Bill Savitt was the premier uh, jewelry store owner and showman and self-promoter. 
an entrepreneur, and he had a semi-pro team called the Gems, and he was really the only person I know of in this state and maybe in all of New England who actively invited uh, Negro League teams to play against his semi-pro team and also hired black players. This was extraordinary. He did this in spite of the fact that there was a very hard color line, both in the professional leagues and the semi-professional leagues. But he hired Johnny Taylor, and when and then he he played for a large number of teams in Mexico and Cuba. He played for a team in Winstead, Connecticut. He played in Waterbury, and this was all when. Uh, you know, you'd play in Mexico and Cuba in completely different seasons. And so he, he was always, always playing for some team and always making his mark. But when he was 20 years old, he pitched in the famous Polo Grounds of New York. The Polo Grounds aren't there anymore, but that was the big baseball venue. Uh, he was with the Negro League All-Stars at the time. There was a crowd of 23,000 people, which was enormous. And he was playing against another black team called the Stars. They were either called the um, Sandum Stars or the Trujillo Stars or Satchel Page's Stars. And people probably know the name Satchel Page, another uh, extraordinary black baseball player and a pitcher. Well, young Johnny Taylor who was about a foot and a half shorter than Satchel Paige, if you ever take a look at the photographs where they're shaking hands, uh, Johnny Taylor pitched a no-hitter against Satchel, Satchel Paige's team. And, of course, that means he struck out essentially every player, including Satchel Paige, uh, which was a certainly a blow to Satchel's ego. But he got over it because he beat Johnny Taylor later. But it was one of those um, sort of like dream sequences. <laughs> it was a huge crowd, and Johnny Taylor is just out of his teens, and he's beating one of the best players in the world. And he was really, um, he was a kid who really had his head on straight because he obviously faced the same kind of racism as every other black player did, but he seemed to not let it affect him. A sports writer asked Johnny Taylor whether he was bitter about having to um, stay in the um, Negro Leagues or rather than um, move to the majors, which he was surely um, fit for. And he said, no, he said, I'm not bitter because when we barnstormed in the 1930s and the 1940s, we were paving the way for the next generation. To me, that's a very extraordinary attitude to have. I'm not sure I would have the same kind of long view as Johnny Taylor did. But Taylor knew that because he played, then Jackie Robinson could play. And I think that's, a, that's a very much a, a telling story about how schoolboy Taylor was able to maintain his balance throughout throughout his years and and have a, a successful 
career, even though it was curtailed by racism. On April 28th, 2021, as this episode was being recorded, Johnny Taylor's alma mater, Buckley High, played the inaugural game on the new Johnny Taylor Field at Colt Park in Hartford. Taylor's family was in attendance. The field was renovated over the last year under the efforts of the Greater Hartford Twilight Baseball League and the Colt Park Foundation. The Twilight League is over 90 years old and once hosted Schoolboy Taylor's old team, the Sabbat Gems. You can come to Hartford this summer and catch a game and think about Schoolboy and Louis Sokalexis and Frank Grant and all the other baseball greats who stepped up to the plate in the Nutmeg State. Here's a Grading the Nutmeg Extra. Go to our website, ctexplored.org. You can sign up for our free e-newsletter, CT Explored Inbox. Mark your calendar for May 12, 2021, 6 p.m., to hear Harvard professor Elizabeth Cohen speak about saving America's cities, Ed Logue, New Haven, and beyond. Visit newhavenmuseum.org. To learn more, you can read Steve Thornton's article, African-American Greats in Connecticut Baseball, in Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. If you'd like to know more about the legacy of black baseball in America, you can go to chs.org slash bringchshome to view How the Negro Leagues Changed the Game and America Too, a recent talk at the Connecticut Historical Society by Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Want to know more about Connecticut landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored Magazine and Today in Connecticut History. This episode was produced by Natalie Bellinger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Please join us again for the next episode of Grading the Nutmeg.